0: This is Real World Product Management. Hello, everybody. This is the second episode of a product management podcast, but we already have a first guest um, with me, on uh, on this podcast, Irina. Irina, please introduce yourselves.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Irina Miranos, and to, today together with Vlad, we are going to go through a number of questions that we've got in regards to product management, and hopefully that this w- will be something interesting, not only for e- people in our company, but also for the outside world.
0: Thank you. Right. So, first episode, I re-recorded the webinar that I did inside our company. I removed some of the proprietary notes and made it more generic. Uh, Still, we believe that questions that people were asking during that webinar would be interesting to everyone. And as an extra, we've produced a bit uh, that is specific to our company. And those people who work for our company will be able to hear it at the end of um, this episode. So let's start rolling. First question that we have is, how have you measured success of the product? What is the ROI of the product for the client? And again. I'm going to answer some of these questions specific to the product that I described in the previous episode. I'll go more generic, and then Irina will add her own thoughts that are derived from her own vast experience of product management. So, for generally for us, the ROI is one of the most important metrics of the product success, and so is customer satisfaction. For data-heavy, for example, for B2C products, you can capture pure data, like signups, visits, funnels through the website, heat maps, and so on, and uh, collect, collect sufficient amount of data to be able to say to whether the product is successful or not. Generally, uh, measure the adoption. For B2B products, it usually is not that easy, especially in the early stages when you don't have all the customers. You don't even have all the customers exposed to the product. You're releasing it to a very specific cohort of customers just to see if it satisfies the need, if it answers a specific need of a customer. And in, in, in the case of this particular product, most of the data we're collecting was qualitative rather than quantitative, which means we ask customers, do you like it? Does it solve your problem? Do you need something to, to be fixed? Do you want additional features? How well does it work for you? Those kind of things. So we did not have a specific ROI attached to it. We did not have any specific uh, KPIs attached to it. It was just a generic yes, no, how well does it work? On top of that, um, this particular product that that, that I was describing in the previous episode uh, relied on specific business process steps to be done uh, in a very specific way. One of the benefits of exposing customers to this product or having these customers adopting this particular product is that their realization that those Process, business process steps were not done correctly and certain specific data required for the product was not even collected to begin with so it wasn't it wasn't a product kpi but it was a, a way to validate if the current business process is correct once they saw it's not they had to make changes in their own business processes first or change things within the organization before they can even start using the product irina i know you have your own uh, thoughts on this so by all means jump in
1: Sure. So let me start by saying that B two B and B two C world; those are quite different things. And in B two B world, you basically get a much longer period of adoption of a particular product, and it's not always easy to calculate um, our right rights right out there one since day one once you implemented the product. So with that, we often see that uh, we measure the success of the product not only by revenue, not only by fin finance numbers but we're also doing that by measuring some uh, quantitative uh, metrics as you have mentioned and with that we often looking for some kind of the adoption metrics and it's adoption in the wide meaning because again it can be met. Measure it in all the different ways. You can go from uh, just and basic understanding of the usage uh, on daily, weekly, monthly basis, whatever it is. Uh, versus you can go through uh, you can go through any kind of the metrics that would indicate that people switch from the older systems to other systems uh, that are covering pretty much the same need and the same pain for user to your brand new product. So with that, again, you're measuring adoption, and that gives you good insights into how possible popular popular your product is within the organization. Another uh, metric that can be applied here is any kind of their optimization that is happening on the process side. So anything that you would see in the increased speed of processing a particular request, for example, or uh, anywhere where where you can minimize resources needed to process um, certain aspects of the business, that would give you good insights into what your product improved as well. And again, this is. Something that's straightforward and much easier to measure, starting week one or month one um, of your product uh, implementation, comparing to finance numbers and financial aspects. Uh, that something that would come later in B2B world.
0: Cool. Thank but, you very much, Serena. To- Thank you. All right, let's move on. Uh, the next, well, actually, the next there are two questions that we received, they're very similar nature, so I combined them both. One was for a full-time frame from start to finish of the program, and the other one was how did your project last? When did you get your first real client in production? So first thing, and I, I want to hand it over to Irina here real quick, uh, I want to make sure we understand the difference between projects, programs, and product development, because those two are completely different things, uh, may be related on some level, but in the true sense of the word, they're not. And Irina, please chime in here uh, on on this topic.
1: Sure. So let me start by saying that within every product, you would see a project inside. You would never see a product that does not have a project. So there is always a project. But then, what's the difference? Actually, a project would have certain criteria how you recognize one really simple and straightforward. So first of all, project has certain timeline in mind and milestones and deeds to which this project is tied to. It also has certain scope and budget. So there's always certain limits for how long your project is going to take, how expensive it can be. Uh, also, it has a team who is working on that, Product on the other hand side, this is something that's very unlimited and that can live for years and years and years and have multiple and multiple projects within it. We all know how for number of products we are making different releases. So each of these releases can be treated as a separate project, but does it mean that we are changing the product? Of course not. So all of that stays within the particular product. Um, some other aspects that, again, uh, would uh, differentiate project and uh, and product as how we are doing fun- uh, fundings. So, basically, your budget for the project is usually located on an annual basis. It, it can be some other time range as well. For product, this is something that is continuous with probably more frequent revisits. Usually, it's up to three months every quarter when you're doing some kind of the checklist point and validation how you are with your resources and with your budgeting. And also, uh, a big difference between project and product would be on metric side. Because again, for project, what you're measuring is uh, making sure that you're on time and on budget. Of course, with a certain quality and some technical aspects measured. For product, what you are measuring, it's customer satisfaction, it's any kind of the profitability or or success of the product. It also can include market share and, again, adoption rate and so on. So, the metrics would be quite different between those two. And I do know that people quite often confuse the two, but uh, we should remember that um, project and product would require different approach uh, how to deal with each of them.
0: Thank you, Rina. Uh Yep. Thank you. from From my end, uh, I'd like to add that I was part of the engagement recently that uh, was I was part of the engagement recently that was uh, supposed to completely remove project and program level thinking from uh, teams that were involved in product development. In other words, uh, that would be a milestone slash checkpoint for the budgeting perspective for the budgeting aspect of it. So, hey, do you guys need more funding? Do you guys need less funding? Uh, what is the current status and what else do you need to move forward? But the whole concept of project and program would be completely removed from the product development. And the only uh, stream, so to speak, would, that, were, that was to be left was uh, team-based financing. So think about it as a feature team that is receiving steady stream of financing, and is developing feature capabilities or full products and there's no projects involved there's no programs involved there's just specific uh, milestones or touch points every six and 12 months to adjust the budgeting for those teams which is yet another uh, way of doing things without any projects or, or programs uh, or for product development. And this is why we have different people on this podcast. This is the idea. So we can see different approaches and different aspects. So, uh, Irina, thank you very much for your perspective. I just want to add, since there was a question, uh, when did we, how long did this uh, development process last? And when did we get a first real client in production uh, this particular product that was mentioned in the previous uh, episode took nine months roughly from when the idea was formulated when we literally spelled it out uh, within the organization to the launch date it was roughly nine months uh, within those nine months we were able to validate that the idea makes sense it sounded solid uh, we were able to develop several prototypes we were able to uh, engage with uh, champion customers so we had production customers even before product keep the mvp phase so we can't really tell you i can't really tell you uh we can't really gauge uh, how long it took for us to get a first real client because we had real clients prior to mvp phase those were our champion customers that helped us shape the mvp shape the product and shape the product's roadmap so hopefully that answers that question uh succinctly and uh Let's move forward the next question we got uh based on uh previous episode is how do you decide when to park an initiative mainly after you have a working mvp so this is this is a really e- easy question uh because it's the answer is obvious when it stops giving pre- 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 when it doesn't give a value it doesn't present the value or it stops giving out the value um in other words when it doesn't work anymore uh, which means one of the things happened. Uh, we're not able to generate profit or sustain a specific retention rate. Some of the products uh, in the market are developed not to generate uh, revenue, but uh, to generate a specific retention rate. Uh, and, and I gave an example in the previous uh, episode. Um, it's, it's, it's the product that is not there to get new customers. It's the, it's the product or a feature of a product or a capability of a product. That is there to keep customers from moving away. And uh, from a generic example, it would be the whole story with Apple TV and iTunes. Um, yes, you may change. Uh, you may you, you may change the device. You absolutely can go to I don't know Android phones or Windows phones when they we had them. Uh, but your library stays with iTunes. So you're effectively chained to. Uh, the ecosystem that you had before. So that is uh, the iTunes was there not to generate any profit, but to generate a specific retention uh, uh, retention rate uh, for the customers. Uh, another uh, another thing uh, that uh, may play into abandoning the initiative or abandoning a working product is when you're unable to scale. When you can't scale anymore, you have way too many clients, or the clients started consuming. Too, too, too much or too many of resources depending on how you measure the resources and you can't sustain that rate um back in the day when dropbox was a new thing uh there was a lot of new startups that tried to do the same thing they did document sharing you know um collaborative editing and most of them died out because they weren't able to scale they had a, a product that was uh, usable to an extent they had product that was um, the customers were buying, but they didn't have a, an ability or a capability to scale. And one by one, they died out. I was uh, I was working for a company that used one of those. We decided to use uh, some no-name product instead uh, of oh. something else that was available from one of the major players. And um, eventually, everybody stopped using it because it was slow. It didn't sync documents correctly because a lot of customers overwhelmed the servers. And eventually, we ended up using something generic. Another reason we're not able to sustain the support, similar, similar um, capability. Too many clients using the system and they have problems, but we can't support them. Uh, we can't uh, scale the support organization or support capabilities um, to uh, support all these customers. And obviously, customers are unhappy. They start leaving, uh, the, uh, leaving the organization, stop using product, product dies out. And... Um, Another thing, after you have a working MVP and you decide to abandon it, you can't sell it. And this is one of those things that really boggles your mind uh, Once, you, if you've never done selling, if you never tried to sell the product uh, to the market, is that you think you have a solution for a problem. You develop into a product and seem like you validated and does solve the problem. But when you present it to the customers, customers say, listen, yes, it's a pain for us. But it's not such a big pain that I'm willing to pay to resolve it. Or I already have a process to resolve it, so I don't want to pay for it. And again, this another reference to the previous episode, the industry that uh, the product was developed in was a very thin margin industry. So this may be the reason why you aren't able to sell it. Not because your product is inherently bad, but because the cost of your product or the price of your product is, to, is prohibitive. To the, current, to the market that you're selling it to. Your customers are not willing to spend their money on solving this problem because they're saving their money for something else. That would be another reason why you're unable to sell um, the product, even though you have an MVP, that'll solve the problem, but hey, nobody wants to pay for it. Irina, you want to add anything to this, or we're moving on?
1: Let's move on for now. Thank okay. you, Vlad. Cool. All
0: right, next question. In terms of prototyping, would you go by yourself here in the early stage, or would you suggest uh, this to be a task for UX designer? Uh, what, is, what are your thoughts on that? I'll start, and then I'll hand it over to Rena, uh because she has her own slightly different point of view, which is great. Uh, so we hear different, uh, different angles on this. Personally, I'd love to do everything by myself so that I can project the vision, the product vision that I have directly to developers and, and tell them what I want to be done. But as my experience says, a lot, of, almost all my products always fared better when there was a dedicated UX resource, a designer or um, customer experience uh, expert at hand, uh, which means I'm not that great at design. I, I can and will project the vision, but it's always better when the designer takes over and, and wrestles out of my hands. During ideation, prototyping stage, it's fine to use some wireframes. You know, just something you put quickly back, uh, quickly to put together on the back of a napkin uh, for UI. But once you start showing this to other people, not just you, it's always better to have someone call quali- better qualified uh, in uh, UI/UX uh, realm than you. And again, maybe you're as a product manager, you're coming from um, UX. In that case, you probably would be would fare better than I did. Uh, but uh, in general, it's always better to have a UX person doing the UX personally. And and I learned this the hard way by developing those products that I mentioned before. Uh, I'm a big fan of collaborating between people and teams. I always try to find people that uh, would be would have proper skill set for the job. I learned the hard way not to be a UX designer and always engage someone who is uh, who's an expert in that field. Uh, Irina, I know you have uh, your own say in this, so please go ahead.
1: Sure. So I'm trying to keep us back uh, tied to B2B world. And in most of their examples, most of the companies that we see out here, is basically we're facing with the situation when UX is done by specialists in this area. And sometimes it's uh, the whole separate department who is doing the UI and UX and who is starting uh, doing any kind of the prototypes day one together with the product team, together with the delivery team. Sometimes we see that this is people who are incorporated into product team because they have to stay in touch, in close touch with product managers. Otherwise, you're just not going to be successful. But still, it's especially it's so dedicated people who are working with design. Of course, as a product manager, you can uh, start doing some early prototype by yourself, especially when you need to sell an idea to a business owner, for example, or to any kind of other stakeholders. And the reason for that is the fact that it's better, much better to show one pager, just one image to them, and then talk for another. Hour about your product and what you're going to do about this, rather than to come with nothing, show nothing, and then talk for an hour. Believe me, uh, people will stick to this image and they will use it and reuse it many, many times after that. And of course, as a product manager, you do need to have a good sense of what good UX is and what good UI is, but it still doesn't mean that you need to do that on your own. It's always great if you have such um, understanding what the good UX is about because with that, it would be so much easier for you to validate any kind of the prototypes that are being done for you and then make adjustments. But it's really hard to stay up to date with all the trends in this era. And, you know, it's really hard to look at your product um after you worked on that for a month or two with fresh eyes and with uh, with fresh um, understanding how it might look like. So I do encourage you to have a separate dedicated person or even department working on that. And as practice shows, this is what many, many companies are doing and they are quite successful in establishing the model when product team is collaborating with UXers, but UXers are still a separate service and uh, they are doing job based on their knowledge and experience. Vlad, back to you.
0: Cool, thank you. <clears throat> yes, I. this is actually one of those Topics where we in complete agreement, uh, My one of my recent engagements actually had a UX expert as a part of the product management team. So product management team was a team uh, standing up on their own, and it, was, it consisted of a product manager and UX uh, apart from a couple of other people. So they worked in collaboration and presented a unified vision of a product, including the uh, e- user experience. All right, moving on. To the next question The next question is To identify market and product needs The proper market research is required Did you do it yourself Or do you use sources provided by the client Or something else So this is a great question because I'm going to talk about experience uh, Within the smaller team I know how it is in the larger companies And I'll let Irina speak to that Uh, But I'll I'll focus on How small companies do this uh, And they don't (laughs) the pain of being within a small company as 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 much as it presents you with a lot of opportunities and a lot of flexibility uh, the pain is sometimes you can't afford uh, to pay for market analytics or you can't afford to engage with analysts from uh, major companies you can sometimes you can't even afford a large enough marketing department to do this research for you so what happened to uh, me in this previous um, engagement this Uh, specific vertical that I was working at, I had to work with subject matter experts either within the organization or from customers, which is what I briefly talk about in the section of hire your customers. That was my marketing research. That was what I ended up doing, uh, going to people who worked in this industry for a while, who either had their own businesses or uh, used to have their own businesses, and they have a vast amount of experience with specific things. And that, is, that was the best that was available to me at the moment. And that's what I used uh, as a marketing research uh, by had, uh, had to interview customers multiple times, either same customers multiple times or different customers to keep probing, to keep looking for those areas of opportunity uh, for those um, uh, pain points that customers didn't realize they have because they got so used to the pain they don't really recognize that it's a pain and um, that would give me um, that would give me an idea of what the market needs and how can we close that so it was a an interesting process because it opened up a lot of um, inner inner knowledge of the industry but it also was very painful and not really efficient because there was a lot of repetition of things that were not interested but People would just wanted to talk about it for a while. And, and that was really interesting um, in terms of how you extract the data that makes sense to you from all these interviews and all these uh, interactions with subject matter experts within the company and within clients. Now, I'll let Irina take over and talk about the real way to do the market research in the B2B world. Irina, please.
1: Sure. So I probably should start by saying that there are obvious ways how you can start doing market research in B2B world and in bigger setups. The right thing to do would be start uh, looking at any kind of the analytics uh, from Gardner, Forrester or any other you know, such kind of the organization that can give you a much clearer picture where you're going to be in a couple of years, what's the competition in this area. Also, you actually can use such reports to understand how you're doing on technology side and see and make sure that you're actually choosing the right technology for a solution and where your competitors might be outdated in a couple of years just because you know the, the stack that's in use by them is going to be absolutely ups- to live by that time. Um, but with that, realistically saying, when you're a product manager and when you're in the market research stage, there are so many different activities that you would need to handle as a product manager. A part of doing the external market research, you also need to perform their internal research or uh, collect the information that you already have within your company. And that uh, can come uh, from your team who's already been working on product for so long and can serve as a good sort Source of information for you. And also, as a product manager, you obviously would like to talk to clients. Just coming back to this case that Vlad mentioned, that your current clients, your current customers might have a pain that they're so used to that they wouldn't even realize that that's a pain and this is something that can be fixed. So collecting all such information might be really useful for you as a product manager to see how can you improve your future product or a new version of the product or just a new product. So with doing all of these um, internal or internally facing activities, you obviously will not have much time to get uh, to go outside and to get access to this external market. And with that, what we see happening in many, many enterprises is market department, um, marketing department helping product managers to do such market research. And that actually would benefit you as a product manager, not only in getting some free time for do to, uh, to make um to work and make happen uh, may come through some other activities that you will have but also that helps them to understand the market better so later on in the game when marketing uh, department will need to form a marketing strategy and go to market strategy they would already have much better insights uh, into what the market is out there, what's the competition, what's their target audience uh, what's the market size and so on. So collecting all this information upfront for you as a product manager would benefit this marketing department later on as well. So with that, we actually do see that in many uh, cases there's markets um, marketing department who is doing that, or also there is um, a role of um, marketing product manager who can take on such um, activities. It still doesn't mean that product manager should not understand the competition and should not understand um, the market out there it absolutely case that the product manager should have really great insights into that. It's just a matter of fact that uh, not exactly product manager by himself or herself need to perform all of these activities and all of these actions. And you definitely uh, can and should use all of the help that is available for you here in order to perform market research as uh, quick as possible. Because other cases that we saw happening uh quite often as well, is the fact that um, market research on its own takes several months and probably by the end uh, of this exercise and by the time when you have results some information that market research might be already obsolete and you're ready uh, several months late with your product. So this is something that um, any kind of help that you would use might help you and might assist you in doing such market research in much faster way. Vlad?
0: thank you. I think we've uh, we've talked about this uh, deep enough. So let's move on to the next question. Do you please really share how you create MVPs in the cheapest and the quickest way? Which tools for prototyping you use? <clears throat> Not sure if there is a specific tools I would recommend. It really depends on a technology stack and the problem you and the problem you're trying to solve. Um, in this particular case, this product, we've had a bunch of SQL servers. Uh, we we'll we'll had a whole Microsoft office, we were a Microsoft shops, so we used Excel and SQL databases uh, for processing some of the logic and presenting the results. Uh, for other MVPs, we've used anything that is free and open source uh, WordPress, WooCommerce, Auto, any uh, Drupal, any other open source components or systems we could find. This is not only for the previous uh, for the product that I was describing but for many enterprise worlds I had lived in before that sometimes it would come down from uh, really high- level executives don't bother with requesting specific resources find what you can online uh, whatever is uh, open source and free show us how it would work and that we will use that prototype as a as a way to request the budget as a way to justify, The spend, that, hey, we can't use this for licensing reasons, so we have to build something like this uh, on our own dollars. Irina, if you have any other suggestions, please feel free to chime in.
1: Sure. So when we're talking about prototyping, you know, there's no one right way how you can do that and how you can um, validate your idea up front. Um, I saw very different cases from uh, going by a napkin exercise, you know, when you're meeting with your business owner, potential sponsor, and just trying to draw out your product on the napkin in a restaurant, and sometimes it works. um, And also, on the other hand side, you can do really deep prototype by your own using any kind of the tool that's available to you. I I probably should say that one of the most uh, useful is still PowerPoint, and many people are still doing lots of prototypes and showing different flows within the PowerPoint. And this is something that everyone has available, really great to share, and you know no one's going to question you why you're using prototype uh, or why you're doing prototype in PowerPoint point. So, yeah, I do see that happening a lot and sometimes it can have a level of complexity when you're getting up to several thousands of different elements on one page of the slide. So, um, you know, it might be really deep uh, uh, work through prototype, even though it's still PowerPoint. And, of course, you can do that by your own. So, basically, the only thing, the only resource that it requires is your time and your energy. You're not spending much money on that, as you can tell. If you've got some budget, you can hire some of their uh, UXers, some of the front-end developers, or some of the UI uh, representatives and developers, and those people can help you to create a more realistic and clickable prototype and this is always great when you can show not only some pictures how the product will look like but also kind of show some kind of the flow how the data will go between different screens and so on and that's very powerful tool as well and out to this level of details, it's always great to share any kind of insights like that or any kind of the early prototypes like that when you're attending any kind of the conferences or any kind of events where you can see your potential users uh, and your potential clients. So when you have this level of details, um, it should be enough for them to understand what your product is about, how it's going to look like, how it's going to work, and, and this is really powerful too. How we can get get an earlier feedback about your product. Although I, I would be cautious to uh, go into such wide audience with uh, just black and white version done in PowerPoint because with that you might cause even more confusion and many questions are being asked about your product. So uh, when you're getting out there with, with the prototype uh, just be sure that it's self-explanatory and people can just click through that and understand this without any bigger instructions or... Uh, you know, excursion around different elements and functionality that you would expect to have within your product later on. So, again, prototyping can be an easy and cheap thing, and you can spend spend as much money as you you would spend later on the product by doing a very detailed and extensive prototype. But that's the matter of the question and of the KPIs that you would have. Sometimes it worth spending money on doing number of detailed prototypes and then getting to the point when you have the right product to be built rather than uh, doing an early MVP of the product, spending some money there, and then figuring out that this is not something that will work. So no one right way, no silver bullet, uh, play by the conditions and play by your budget. Blood. Back Thank to you. Thank you, Rina.
0: Thank you. This was great. Let's keep moving on. Next question. Again, uh, which tools do you use for metrics tracking? And uh, before I answer, <laughs> before I answer this question, I just want to point out that it's great that we're focusing so much on tools, but um, in reality, most of the responsibilities of a product manager can be done with just with Excel or with pen and paper uh, as long as you have the right data in front of you Um, it's less about tools it's more about what you use those tools for and what kind of information you're gathering so for that particular uh, product uh, we've used good Excel with list of clients their feedback answers and issues they've experienced obviously if you have a B2C product and you're collecting vast amounts of data if it's a web application or if it's an app you can use google analytics or any other tool to collect the data points uh but at the end of, at the end of the day uh for stakeholder reports you're probably not going to have them log into um, google analytics or adobe uh, analytics or any other things you would probably collect those reports and put them into excel against their other kpis or other metrics that um, you're tracking or you just those screenshots and uh, it's really not that important which tools you use It's more important how you present the results and if you're really tracking those metrics against the KPIs that you care about. I've seen many times where people were so obsessed with, oh, hey, we have a bazillion visits to our website. Guess what? 90% of it is either bouncing or it's bots. So you're not really getting the actual customers or people who are really interested in your product. You're just having a lot of parasite traffic to your website. So really be careful about what you're asking you really care about the tools or you really care about what those tools are showing you Irina, if you have a short note please feel free to add
1: yeah so when we are talking about metrics one of the important aspects over here is to remember that you're not measuring metrics just for the sake of measuring those you're measuring them for the sake of other understanding if you're on the success path uh if you're doing things right or if not so much than to convert them to certain actions. So what I would recommend to do here is not to be that much focused on the tool. Um, of course, we can mention some of them, but just not to market any particular tools and software probably wouldn't uh, do that today, but rather emphasize the fact that you need to identify what are the key metrics for a product and measure those on a constant basis and make sure that you have uh, um, a certain very limited set of metrics on which you're reporting. Remember that when you're reporting based, uh, based on these metrics to your business owners, you shouldn't use. A tons of numbers. They will never read through them and they will never understand that. Stick to probably three, five metrics that you probably not even measuring directly, but something that you are calculating based on the metrics that you see in your product and then uh, start reporting on them on weekly, bi-weekly, monthly basis, whatever it feels right for a particular product. So with that, uh, you definitely can use several tools, and this is uh, actually what's happening in most of the cases. But make sure that, again, you are not only looking at these metrics, you're making them, you're converting them to certain actions. Uh, you are trying to improve certain metrics. You have the key metrics as something that you constantly monitor, probably on a daily basis. And you have a minimal set of metrics in which you're reporting back to your business that would i would say as the most important aspects um, of course in today's world um when we are talking about desktop applications, Google Analytics would supply you uh, quite a big amount of data about your product, although uh, it's not going to give you the full picture and there are a number of tools uh, available on the market that would help you to better understand what's happening with the retention uh, within your product, how you're dealing with the conversion of your uh, customers and so on. So, uh, definitely look for something additional uh, to Google Analytics that would serve the need for a product. And again, don't be obsessed with numbers, don't be obsessed with number of these metrics, uh, be obsessed with getting success with your product. Vlad, back to you.
0: Thank you. All right, let's move on. Next question, really deep. Is it necessary to perform all these activities, support, is it necessary to perform all these support activities by the product manager all the time? When are the times to grow your own product support team and escalate all these activities to them? And this is in reference to uh, the part of the story in the previous episode when I talked about the responsibilities of a product manager and how a product manager ends up doing a lot of things around sales, support, marketing, uh, interfacing with developers... Uh, Interfacing the legal team and literally everything there is to do as a business owner or uh, a mini CIO or mini CEO of a product. And uh, my take on this in a a small organization that I was a part of, you do end up doing all of that, and it's really amazing hands-on experience when you're responsible, literally responsible for all of that you are responsible to reach out to legal counsel and draft a contract you are responsible for either producing a sales and marketing collateral or having a very major stake and very major input on that down to individual items on that one page or on that website you it's really amazing experience when you touch every single part of your product management responsibility scope and it does give you a lot of new things to learn of course Nobody is born with that knowledge, so it does give you a great uh, learning experience and introduces a lot of humility to being a product manager. But if I was to isolate at least one of the activities that I would absolutely recommend everyone would go through, it would be sales. I would absolutely encourage anyone who wants to be a product manager to sell at least one of their products, not just develop it and throw it at the market and see what sticks. But actually, go and sell it. If you've never done this before, it would really blow your mind because it presents you with absolutely different perspective on things, absolutely different view on how your customers perceive your product. Especially if you're coming from uh, development, a BA, QA, testing, any other IT environment, any other IT background, it absolutely, if you never own your own business, it will absolutely blow your mind. It's one of those experiences that you absolutely must have in order to be a successful product manager. Um, I know Irina has a different take, which is uh, why it's great to have different point of view. So Irina, why don't you talk about uh, more of a enterprise and more of a B2B environment and expectations for a product manager?
1: In today's world, when you're applying to your position of product manager, there are certain expectations from you as a person who is going to serve such a role within the organization. That in most of their companies you would see and ask that product manager should at least word minimum serve as a subject matter expert about the product uh, to all these departments like sales and marketing and support and um, content of the research department and so on and uh, with that you need to, to interact with all of these departments on some regular basis no matter what so this is I would say uh, the minimal ask that's uh, that is out there. Uh, in most of the cases, though, it's not going to be just limited to be kind of the consultants about the product and service, a subject matter expert, but to have a closer um interaction with all of these uh, departments. So with that, for support team, you usually as a product manager expect uh, expected to provide any kind of the trainings and demos and um, any materials that would help them, end user materials I meant over here, that would help the support team to um, promote certain feature or share more information with the end users, how that functionality can be used or how to use it right and all of these trainings are done um, in various formats but still this is something that m- in most of the cases you're going to do uh, pretty much e- per uh, every big release when you're uh, pushing out there some big functionality or some new ba- uh, big capability uh within your product so again at least trainings for support team when we are talking about marketing As we already mentioned earlier today, marketing department in most of the cases is helping you to do the market research. And uh, with that, it would be really great for product manager to be involved in such activities. It's not only uh, for the sake of extra help that you're providing there, but also for the sake of product manager to better understand the market and with that to be able to interact with the end users and with the customers that are available in the market uh, to better understand the target audience, to better understand what what are the pain points that all of these people have, and later on, uh, that knowledge really helps you to prioritize uh, certain capabilities within your product, right? And then probably would uh, help you to do the positioning right as well when you're talking to your business, because positioning for the external market again uh, would be most most probably. Uh, be done by the marketing department so again by involving into any kind of marketing activities you have much better understanding of your end users their uh, their pain points, and their needs and another um and another department that most probably you are going to be tied with is sales so for sales um these guys tend to ask you to sit in uh, sales pitches. It doesn't mean that product manager should conduct uh, such sales features, uh by himself or herself. Uh, in most of the cases, you're just going to be there to listen to the requests uh, from the potential uh, buyers, from the potential clients, and also to provide any kind of the needed um, assistance to the sales team answering questions that they might not exactly Be aware of, especially that is tied to. Uh, that's uh, related to questions about any kind of strategic um, plans and overall vision for your product where it's going to be developed in the nearest or longest future. So for sales, you also might be reviewing any kinds of the materials or at least um, providing the content for creating such materials because uh, no one uh, except the product manager would know better and uh, would phrase it better how particular capability, um, what first of all, what, uh, what capability is going to be out there in the next three months and then how we can market that and how, why we why did we decide to put that on product map in the first place. So for sales department, again, you're helping these guys with any kind of the materials and content for these materials and also attending the sales features. This is their uh, more genuine ask that you would see out there on the market and all of this is expected from product manager uh, at least to be aware of and or at max to spend certain capacity, certain percentage of from time um, helping all of these departments. And these are the support markets in the sales. These is the guys that all together, together with the product team, would form the success of your product. So you do need to make sure that you work as one business. Team. Vlad, back to you.
0: Thank you, Rina. This is great. Uh, 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 We're now at the last question for this. Um, Sorry, that's last. Okay, we we still have two more questions. So um, let's do one short and one long response. Uh, Short uh, question How do you decide whether it's going to work or not? The whole team or was it rather a gut feeling as a pm and i'm gonna ask irina and i'm gonna ask myself to take this as in how do you decide at any stage of product development if it's going to work Uh, but the idea level at the prototype level at team pvp level and past that so my take on this is it's more of a collective conscience it's a Usually, it's a group decision because you never work alone, you never work in the vacuum. You have a lot of people, a lot of stakeholders, and you have a lot of input from all sides, from CEO, CIO, to marketing, to sales, to development team. Any team at any point in time may come back to you and say, hey, this is no longer feasible to support your initiative, to support that stage of product development that you're in. Eventually, you may develop a gut feeling. There's a uh, If you read... Internets, if you listen to other product managers, there is a thing that's called product manager's gut feeling or product manager gut. It is a thing people have, get to feel that it's time to stop or they get to feel that it's a good idea. But you really need to assess the uh, 360 on the situation, you really need to understand every stakeholder's uh, vision, whether it's sustainable to continue, whether this idea, whether this prototype, whether this MVP, whether this product has reached the end of life and it needs to be phased out or it needs to be cancelled it, it almost never in my experience it has been never uh just a single person's endeavor it was always a collective feeling or a collective decision it was sometimes it was in together with a customer sometimes it was within the company but it was always uh an input from subject matter experts that triggered certain decisions Irina if you have anything else please add
1: yeah, so this gut feeling, you know, this assumption that many people used to... Use and used to have when you're developing a product. Um, these days, good product manager is a data-driven product manager, and um, the responsibility of the good product manager is to collect enough data to make to actually remove this gut feeling uh, to a certain point and make certain decision uh, um, an obvious thing. So, with all the data that you have in hands, no one is going to question your decision. Uh, and that would make you a unique and a great product manager into the youth world. So basically, you need to be data driven. This gut feeling, this is something that you definitely will get once you're getting more experience, but it takes years. And uh, with data, you never can be wrong. Um, so my advice to you, be data-driven as much as possible, and of course, it's going to be completely different data, depending on the stage, of the life uh, life cycle stage of your product, and when you're just doing prototype, or when you're already monitoring a product that's out there, uh, it's going to be data uh, different data points that you need to monitor and collect, but try to make it happen, and then everyone will realize that there is no good or bad, there is just the obvious thing that you need to do blood back to you
0: thank you okay this is the last question and uh, it probably will be one of the long answers but uh, let's let's bear with us uh, for what period do you build a roadmap uh, it's a really deep question because there's no right answer at least in in, in my book um, ideally you build a road a roadmap not the Z roadmap uh, for a period of up to 12 months and uh, again in my book you can only build a detailed roadmap this early in the game and again uh, we're talking about uh, from inception to MVP and the first first you know just just first stages first months of introducing product to the road uh, to the market. Uh, you can only have a detailed roadmap for the first three months realistically you can outline the features and capabilities that you plan to develop. Uh, by then market will have their own say about things and you will need to adjust so it doesn't make sense to plan a detailed uh, roadmap further than the next three months what you can do for the next three months is have a less detailed or so to speak have broader strokes on your roadmap for about six months past six months they probably have very high level capabilities defined I want my product to be able to do this and that's as as detailed as you probably would go because again as i said market will have their say your stakeholders will reassess your situation Uh, a lot of things may change in six months so it probably doesn't make sense to spend that much time and effort on detailed planning because no plan ever survived uh contact with reality so it would probably in my book it would make sense to be very detailed first three months uh, somewhat less detailed in the next three months and the remaining six months to be very high level very uh capabilities and high level feature oriented irina please chime in here because i know that's uh, that's a deep topic for you
1: yeah so there there can be really a long long answer from me on on this question today but i will try to cut it short so i would say that there timeframe for a roadmap might be really different depending on the level of trust that you're getting and you as a product team uh, is getting. Uh, When you would like to have a little bit more certainty and when you have your business uh, and your sponsors making sure that you're always doing great and you're doing the right thing, they might be okay with you having only roadmap for three months where you have more concrete things, you have clear priorities and then Uh, you're revisiting that on, for example, months to be used. Realistically, in B2B world, in most of the cases, you would see requests uh, to have roadmap for 12 months. And why is it 12 months? It's because we are still, um, even when we are building products, we are still kind of tied back to this project mindset and as we discussed when we have projects, we have certain funding periods and usually this funding period is one year, so it's 12 months and this is exactly for how long you would need to have your roadmap in order to be able at least somehow allocate and calculate budget that you would need for a product and of course, you know, it it's really hard to predict what's going to be in your product and what you're going to be working on in six months from now, even from six months from now. So with that, this budget allocation in most of the cases is treated rather than just as a bucket. It doesn't mean that you're committing to certain features that you've put on your roadmap. It just uh, uh, gives you some boundaries uh, outside which it would be hard to go or if you're going outside of these boundaries, you basically will need to have an extra ask and extra conversation with your business and your sponsors. So this is how you would treat that 12-month roadmap. And again, and this is what is happening in most of the cases, and this is the majority of requests that you would have as a product manager in majority of companies. Um, we're still facing some cases when a product manager sometimes uh, sometimes has been asked for three or five years roadmap, and realistically, um, like probably 1% of product managers uh, have roadmap for such long periods of time. And the reason for such asks is coming from the cases when you are dealing with a potential huge client or when you're uh, talking to the uh, to the company who might become a partner uh, or one of the vendors uh, for your product. With that, uh, these guys are usually asking for a longer-term roadmap um, in order to make sure that your strategy and your vision for a product overall on the longer-term sh- um, on the longer term is somehow aligned with what they have in mind, just to make sure that you know there are no contradicting things and there are no things that are actually completely not within their vision and not within their roadmap. And for that, you actually being asked to have something some longer term. Um, another thing to mention here is actually the fact that you uh, sometimes you need to have different versions of the roadmap. The one that you would expose internally to your delivery team, for example. And these guys will be happy with a shorter-term roadmap and more concrete one that is more stable. And with that... you can stick to three months roadmap only. You also will need to have a roadmap that can be externally uh, shared, uh, that will be used by your sales team and potentially your marketing. And that can be something more concrete, but still not treated as a commitment. And everything that you put in there, you would like to make sure that, again, it's more or less stable. So it can be from six to nine to 12 months uh, in some of the cases. And then there should be a vision, there should be a strategy, there should be a roadmap that uh, you are sharing with your business owners and your sponsors. And of course, for these guys, you kind of would like to show a longer-term strategy because you don't want to come to these guys and say, here, what we're going to do in the next three months, and then we don't know, we have no idea. You absolutely would like to, to convince them that you are in absolute control of the situation. And with that, you know what you're going to be doing, or at least you Know where you're going to be looking, which theme, which strategy you're going to be taking in, in a year from now. So, from that perspective, you need to have this internally used roadmap for a longer periods of time. Um, I saw cases when we were creating roadmaps for three and five years. I would say that, again, it's hard to do. Most of us don't do that. Most of us don't have such roadmaps. But when such requests are coming, uh, be prepared that uh, this is a good way of showing yourself as a strategic thinker, which is actually a good skill for product managers. Vlad, back to you.
0: Thank you, Rina. I just wanted to add one, one note on the topic when you said the longer term roadmaps are used to align with uh, strategic partners. In many cases that I've seen, uh, long- longer term roadmaps are used as a bargaining chip or um, your customers actually will have a chance to adjust your roadmap, your longer term roadmap based on their, uh, their priorities, or adjust their roadmaps based on your priorities. If you're one of the strategic partners and your product is adopted as the natural enterprise platform for a large enough company, they will have something to say about your priorities and things in your roadmap. At the same time, they will use it to prioritize their internal development effort. And I've seen this happen more than once. Look at the partner's roadmap. Hey, this capability comes up Q2 next year. So by that time we need to develop something that will use that capability internally. So if you guys are standing by that promise, then we'll plan certain activities around that. So it's not just uh, don't don't treat this as a you know as a read-only item. Don't treat this as your own thing. There will be cases definitely 100%. There will be cases where other companies will depend on it. The, the companies will try to convince you to change things around or will use it as their own internal guide on how to do things uh, inside their own organizations. And of course you can always, you know, trade things back and forth. Hey, we're going to move these things around, but promise us, you're not going to ask us to do this thing and, and, and so on. So that wraps up our episode that wraps up all the questions we had. Uh, Thank you very much, Irina, for uh, being here on the podcast
1: Thank you, Vlad, for inviting me and having me over.
0: Oh, it's uh, absolutely a pleasure, and I can promise you this is not the last time you're here. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have any questions, please email them to me at askvlad at com. That's the dedicated email address that you can send, these, send the questions for this podcast. And if you have any questions to our speakers, in this case, it's Serena, uh, send an email to this address, and I'll absolutely share all the notes and all the feedback and all the questions with her and hopefully we'll have her back uh next time to answer those questions again the email is ask vlad at vgrubman.com thank you very much it's been a pleasure and uh let's hope we we'll hear each other again
1: thank you and bye now
0: you've been listening to the real world product management and i've been your host vlad grubman until the next time